Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hello, Andy. And uh, we're here with someone else. Yes, we have a special guest. You know, we're getting back into our, our guest mode here. We went a long time where our only guest was Akil, and I know you all got tired of that. So we decided <laughs> to bring in some, some very special voices. And today we're joined by uh, the voice and the pen of, uh, of Professor Brad Snyder uh, from Georgetown University. So welcome, Brad. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Akil. I'm honored to be here. So let me tell our audience a little bit about Brad. He has an interesting uh, career arc so far. He attended Duke as an undergraduate. After college, Brad went to work as a sports reporter at the Baltimore Sun. He then switched gears and attended the Yale Law School. He uh, clerked for Dorothy Nelson on the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. He then took a step combining these careers in a sense. He wrote a, uh, a very acclaimed book, a really outstanding book um, about baseball called uh, A Well-Paid Slave, Kurt Flood's Fight for Free Agency uh, in Professional Sports. That was in 2006. Um, now he's a uh, Georgetown University law professor and a Guggenheim fellow. And at Georgetown, he teaches constitutional law, sports law, 20th century American legal history. And uh, he's now writing books and articles about the history of the Supreme Court. And currently, he has uh, a book that's been very well reviewed, gotten a lot of attention, uh, including here today, called uh, Democratic Justice, Felix Frankfurter, the Supreme Court, and the Making of the Liberal Establishment. That's a Norton book. And I'm told that this book is much longer than most books that uh, the Norton uh, permits to be published. So that's a, some kind of an honor uh, and actually significant honor. I've got the Norton Shakespeare. That's pretty long, but uh, it's printed on the thinnest paper I can, uh, I've ever seen the Norton Shakespeare in order to make it one volume. Anyway, um, so this is a, a comprehensive biography of Felix Frankfurter, who himself was a comprehensive individual, as we'll see, um, you know, a Harvard law professor, uh, described in uh, Brad's biography as, as New Deal power broker, Supreme Court justice, and I think, you know, more than that as well. Um, okay, so uh, welcome, Brad. It's uh, quite a resume for a young guy. Well, I'm not that young anymore, Andy. I think it's, uh, you know, Zoom can play tricks on you with the, with the image enhancement, uh, but uh, you know, I, that Kurt Flood book really got me fascinated in, in working with the justices' papers and working with primary sources. Harry Blackman, of course, was the author of Flood versus Kuhn, and his papers opened up um, when I was researching that book, and it introduced me um, really to, to how to reconstruct how a, a Supreme Court case gets decided at the Supreme Court level. And then, of course, um, I um, started to get interested in Frankfurter's papers for an early Law Review article that I wrote about the case of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. And at that point, um, I was really hooked on Frankfurter's story and, and Frankfurter's sort of influence um, with, um, you know, other lawyers and presidents and, you know, New Deal figures. And, and uh, from there, it was just this thing that sort of organically happened that I ended up writing law review articles and books um, about Felix Frankfurter. You know, I think Frankfurter is, is particularly interesting to us on, on our podcast because, you know, he represents uh, to some people, you know, one way of thinking about 
the law, the constitutional law, about constitutional law, or about the the role of the Supreme Court and of the Supreme Court justices. And we've been talking in our podcast about you know originalism as a method for approaching uh, the work of the Supreme Court justices. Um, certainly, they've been talking about it. Um, so some people consider it to be ascendant, and of course, Akil is a primary uh, exponent of originalist originalism as we say, properly done. Um, some people call it originalism 2.0. Uh, but at any rate, um, you know, in, uh, in five sentences or something, how would you compare Felix Frankfurter's judicial philosophy um, to originalism? And do you think it has uh, any relevance for the court today? Um, absolutely. I don't think Felix Frankfurter was an originalist by any means, right? But he was someone who um, believed in this article by James Bradley Thayer, who is a Harvard law professor, who believed that federal laws um, shouldn't be overturned unless they were unconstitutional beyond a reasonable doubt. And he was trying, like originalists, to constrain the power of judges, particularly Supreme Court justices. Uh, the case of Lochner versus New York um, was um, came down when he was in law school in 1905, um, overturning a New York um, maximum hour law for bakers. And I think that, and then, of course, he became very much to admire both um, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Um, as a Supreme Court justice and, and Louis Brandeis as um, both a lawyer and a Supreme Court justice, and he was friends with both men, and, and they um, were trying to really put Thayer's judicial philosophy into practice. Um, but uh, another aspect of Frankfurter's, um, he also um, really admired John Marshall's opinion in McCullough versus Maryland, upholding the Second National Bank. And he believed that the federal government's powers were quite capacious, both express and implied. And, and he thought um, that the Supreme Court should really reluctantly and in very few circumstances um, abridge um, that federal power and overturn a federal law and, and a last thing I would say about his philosophy was, although he believed in judicial restraint, he kind of adapted Thayerianism um, of, of Holmes and Brandeis for the 20th century and the 21st century by recognizing that the justice had a role to play in enforcing the 14th Amendment. And I think that's what um, caused him both to um, clash um, with um, Hugo Black, which Hopefully, um, Akil and I will talk about on some things, but also um, moments where they were um, on the same side and, and very much allies, um, like in the case um, of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg um, and Brown versus Board of Education and a whole host of other areas. And I hope we get to um, and I think that's his contribution to judicial restraint. Like, yes, we need judicial restraint, but we also should be um, enforcing um, the 14th Amendment to protect minority rights. Andy, we, we've been sharing with our audience some uh, thoughts about originalism, especially in the wake of the uh, earthquake of uh, 2022, the landmark cases that came down at the end of the term, which were self-consciously, avowedly, proudly, flamboyantly originalist, at least in their aims and, and aspirations. And until now, I think we've offered our audience um, a contrast between originalism and maybe three alternatives, and, and, and Brad with Frankfurter and what he properly identified as Thayerianism is offering a fourth possible alternative. Just to remind the audience, we've contrasted originalism with, let's say, the crusading progressivism 
of someone like Sonia Sotomayor, basically saying, ah, the Constitution should just be imagined as all good things from the point of view of the political left. In the academy today, that might be someone like Erwin Chemerinsky, but on the court, I think its, its avatar might be Sonia Sotomayor. So we have originalism versus progressivism of a certain sort, just crusading leftism. We've got the pragmatism of Stephen Breyer, who's going to come on our show in a, an episode a little bit later this, this fall and, and, and share with our audience some of his ideas. In the academy, that might, the avatar of that might be someone like Dan Farber. Both Chemerinsky and Farber, by the way, are at University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Kind of pragmatism, very fact-dependent and to a critic, um, somewhat unbounded. We've talked about the precedential alternative to originalism, very uh, flamboyantly championed by Elena Kagan, present, present, precedent, which has supporters in the academy. I, I think maybe someone like David Strauss at the University of Chicago. And now Brad is saying, here's a fourth alternative. Frankly, I don't think there's anyone on the court who really consistently promotes it. There, there are moments when maybe Chief Justice Roberts might seem to be in this tradition of a judicial modesty, judicial humility, judicial restraint, a strong reluctance to invalidate, especially acts of Congress, but acts of government more generally. The reason John Roberts can't really be seen as in this tradition, he was more modest than the majority in the Dobbs case, but some of his most important contributions have been smacking down major acts of Congress, like the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in Shelby County on one part of it, the state formula in Section 4. And there's going to be a new case probably coming up soon where he's going to maybe smack down Section 2 or, 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 or modify that. And yes, it, he did uphold much of Obamacare in a minimalist uh, tradition, uh, but he actually invalidated other parts of Obamacare. And, and that was a pretty aggressive move from my point of view, he's a big believer, as am I. I'm not a um, judicial restraint Bayarian. He stands strongly opposed to the major parts of Congress's campaign finance law, McCain-Feingold campaign finance law. That was a very notorious case of Citizens United. So I don't think there's actually anyone on today's court, and Brad can correct me, I'm going to let him back in just a second, who really is an avatar of just judicial restraint. These are nine activist judges, I would say, across the board. In the academy, I'm not sure today that there actually are modern Thayerians. Sometimes Cass Sunstein talks a Thayerian game. He's the former, unsurprisingly, perhaps Felix Frankfurter professor at Harvard Law School. So sometimes, especially when the conservatives are in charge of the court, he, he talks about minimalism and, and restraint. But truthfully, I'm not sure he's consistently um, advocated it across the course of his career. So, Brad, do you think I just described the landmark correctly? Originalists versus precedent people, progressive types, pragmatist types, and then these Thayerians. And are there any genuine Thayerians, Frankfurter types on today's Supreme Court or in the academy today? One person who might be this in the low, among the lower federal judges would be J. Harvey Wilkinson or something like that. Your reactions to my typology, Brad? I like your typology, Akil. I do see similarities between Justice Kagan's jurisprudence and reliance on precedent and Frankfurter's reliance on precedent. You know, he, there was a sort of prudentialism 
to use um, Philip Bobbitt's typology um, in, in relying on precedent and in um, a kind of um, change in, at a kind of Burkean rate, you know, a slow chipping away. And, and, you know, I think that's a hallmark of Frankfurt's judicial career of, you know, very reluctantly overturning the Supreme Court's precedent. So I do see some similarities between Justice Kagan and Justice Frankfurter. I think Justice Kagan is a better writer than Felix Frankfurter was, at least on the court. But but I do see similarities between them in terms of their reliance on precedent. But here's the problem. And this, Andy, is similar to like what we talked about in the religion cases. I see you can believe in separation. You can believe in equality. Actually, you can't believe in them both. They're contradictory principles. This is the inner Lincoln in me, you know, Occam's razor logic. If you don't want to overturn precedents and you don't want to overturn legislative actions, the problem is those are going to be inconsistent all the time. So my friend Elena, press and press and press and row, row, row. And that means if you're all in with row, that you're willing to invalidate the laws of 49 or 50 of the 50 states in 1973. That is not minimalism. That's not Thayerian. That's not deferential remotely, unless you say, oh, you're only invalidating the laws of the states, but all of them, and and also the laws of Congress, because Congress actually had abortion laws on the books. And today, given that we have the war in, in Brown versus Board of Education, you can defer to what legislatures are doing, you know, or you can defer to precedent, which is Plessy versus Ferguson, and says, oh, but now, even though they're actually deferring to legislatures and deferring to precedent might be in the same tradition, you're not actually taking the 14th Amendment seriously, which says equal. But let's take finally today, if a lot of the precedents, not just Roe, but more generally, are Warren Court precedents that actually put limits on what government can do here there and other places, you know, if you defer to the precedents, if you take them seriously, you're going to enforce one person, one vote, and that's going to invalidate what legislatures are doing when they're trying to malapportion or or, or do other things. So I'm saying there's a tr- big tension just between being deferential to precedent and being deferential to legislatures, and neither one of those is actually properly deferential to the Constitution, which is what originalists believe. I think the obvious uh, one, you know, analogy in the case of Frankfurter is he didn't like striking down laws, but if he had been on the court when, uh, you know, Lochner and Progeny were, were coming out, so the precedent that the court was setting was to strike down all these laws, which he didn't want to do. So he, he would oh, yeah. have had, if, if, he would if, have had if, a choice you, between between you know striking down law after law or respecting the precedent. If you come on the court in 1937, your job, Franklin Roosevelt is basically appointing you to do a certain job, and the job is to actually overturn the precedents, which are the precedents of the Lochner era, in the name of deferring to what legislatures want to do. So I'm saying two things. One, that to the extent that Felix Frankfurter was confused because you can't actually be a precedent person and a deference to legislature person. That's one point. There's just an internal contradiction. And two, both of those are the wrong principle. The right principle isn't deferring to precedent, isn't deferring to legislatures. It's paying attention to what the Constitution rightly read says. And of course, that's what I think it means. Right. I think I would say respond in two ways. First of all, I think an important distinction with James Bradley Thayer's theory is between federal laws and state laws. James Bradley Thayer never said um, that um, we should um, 
not um, treat state laws the way we treat federal laws. Oliver Wendell Holmes said um, that um, he didn't think that judicial review, that the, the republic would come to an end if we didn't have judicial review over federal laws. But absolutely, we need judicial review over state laws. And so I think Frankfurter treated federal laws and state laws differently because he was a McCullough constitutionalist, because he believed that Congress had broad express and implied powers. And then the question is, with regard to state laws, is what does the 14th Amendment mean? And I think at, at least in Frankfurter's time, that meaning was quite impoverished. The histories around the Frankfur- uh, the 14th Amendment were terrible. Frankfurter recognized they were terrible. And that's why he dispatched his law clerk, Alexander Bickel, to um, do a year-long or, or term-long research project on the debates over the 14th Amendment. So I think Frankfurter recognized that the history of the 14th Amendment um, at the time that Brown was being litigated um, was totally barren and that he needed a better history. And and Bickle, I think, really stumbled on something that I I think is right. And Akil, I think you might disagree, but um, Bickle was talking about a compromise between the radical Republicans um, in the 39th Congress um, and the moderates and the conservatives. And Bickle said, you know, the, the the moderates and the conservatives wanted some insurances that just this only applied to civil rights and not civil and, and political rights. And the radicals got very broad, capacious language in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. And, and Bickle analogized between McCullough and John Marshall's line that it is the Constitution we are expounding, and the breadth of the language of the 14th Amendment gave it the capacity to apply to different things um, that the framers of the 14th Amendment could not have envisioned. So this is that distinction among originalists between interpretation and construction, and, and that really appealed to Frankfurter. And, of course, at the time, that took that history off the table for the Warren court. Earl Warren was able to say in his opinion that the history of of the 14th Amendment with regard to public education was, quote, inconclusive. And and that was a product of Frankfurter and his law clerk trying to take that issue off the table for the court. And and I thought he did a real service to the court and to Earl Warren himself, as did Hugo Black, in sort of guiding the court to unanimous decision. Not that I am totally in love with limiting the decision to education, But that's what they felt they had to do at the time. I would have liked more interpretation of the 14th Amendment and what it protects um, in Brown. But, um, you know, that's easy to say in 2022. And and it might have been hard to accomplish in the spring of 1954. Andy, you know, I I want to circle back eventually to the Supreme Frankfurt on the court and today's court. And I, I have some things to say about that. But maybe we should actually talk about Frankfurter's origins before he even gets to the Supreme Court, because there's so much in Brad's book about all of that that I think is really important and compelling. But just to put my marker in the ground here, I think Bayer was confused on state versus federal legislation. He said one thing, but actually, when you read the opinion, it's uh, his, excuse me, the, this classic article, it's deeply confused. Holmes actually was very deferential, even when we're talking about state action and outrageous state action, like sterilizing people and, and centering their speech and disfranchising them. So I think Frankfurter was deeply confused and is deferring to states doing all sorts of bad things like priving indigent defendants of appointed counsel, compelling people to profess political and religious beliefs that are contrary to their own and uh, upholding. Frankfurter is willing to uphold all sorts of just utterly outrageous 
outrageous state laws, malapportioning and, and doing other very bad things. And Bickle was confused. So my marker in the stand is no, 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 you know, not Thayer, not Holmes, not Frankfurter, not Bickle. I'm not having, I don't have, you know, I'm not going to put up with any of that. But, but before we start, you know, debating on the Supreme Court, where I'm going to be, I'm pretty critical of Frankfurt. And I'll tell you who my hero is. And he disagrees again and again with Frankfurter. And sometimes they're in agreement. And Brad says, oh, you know, sometimes, you know, they're playing nice. Fine. But when they disagree, I'm going to tell my audience, go with Black. And here's why. And here's what a great justice looks like. And it's not Frankfurter. But before I dump on Frankfurter as a justice, I actually do think that Brad tells an utterly compelling story of Frankfurter before. Before he gets on the court. And, and so before we talk about the Supreme Court, I really want to do Frankfurter justice and do Brad justice because it's an amazing story Brad tells about an amazing life before getting on the Supreme Court. So I, I think I definitely want to go there. And just to frame it a little bit, I, I think that uh, one way to think about it is, you know, when Frankfurter comes on the court with this theorist philosophy, I don't think it comes out of nowhere. He's a man whose life goes far beyond the court, you know, the, um, and the ways in which it goes beyond the court, I think, are surprisingly consistent with a Thayerist kind of uh, approach. I promise at some point we'll define Thayer and Thayerism with a little bit more precision. Yes. So if you, if you don't know what those words mean yet, I promise by the end of the podcast, you will. Right. So that so that's one thing about that to look at Frankfurter's background in terms of how he gets to this this point. Um, And number two, Akil, you said, well, you know, this is what he you know, the way that Frankfurter lives his life before he gets to the court. I would argue that one of the things that's very interesting about Frankfurter is that he continues to live his life this way while he's on the court. (laughs) Uh, And and that's quite interesting. And I think raises a lot of questions uh, that uh, I'm very interested in having uh, Brad address. So with, with that uh, background, Brad, wh- why don't you have at it in terms of uh, uh, maybe looking at Frankfurter's early life um, uh, as, uh, and how it causes him to be the justice that he is um, with the philosophy that he has. And if I could just jump in here, and I'd love to hear, you know, you, you start from the beginning, like in, in David Copperfield fashion, chapter one, I am born, because <laughs> this is an amazing American story that Brad tells in magnificent fashion. Well, well thanks, Akil. That really means a, a lot to me. Uh, Frankfurter is an amazing American story, as you said. He grew up in Vienna, Austria until he was 11. His father was a very unsuccessful businessman, and sort of some people would call him a traveling salesman. Other people would call him a peddler. And his father came over to this country first and, and really like him. Many Europeans um, thought that this country could give him a fresh start. Felix came from a prominent family, and his father was somewhat of a black sheep in that family. His uncle was a very prominent University of Vienna scholar and librarian and and philologist and mentor to Felix. Uh, Felix lived with him for a time. But Felix arrives in this country at age 11, not speaking a word of English and never having heard one spoken. And he has a public school teacher in in PS 22. 25. Her name is Miss Hogan. And he, they're living in a um, lower Manhattan, not Lower East Side, but north of, of the Lower East Side, a German speaking neighborhood where most of the children in this school come from German speaking families. And she threatens them with corporal punishment 
if they speak to Felix in German. And he credits Miss Hogan and PS25 um, with his success in life because he quickly learned English. He quickly, you know, assimilated and it became kind of a 100% American, right? And, and he gives up going to synagogue at age 15. And, and his religion is really um, America and American politics. And by age 19, he's graduated from the combined high school and college program at CCNY, third in his class in 1906, he graduates Harvard Law School, first in his class. Even though he's first in his class, he has a lot of trouble getting a job at a Wall Street law firm because most Wall Street Wall Street law firms at that time won't hire Jews. He finally gets one and then leaves that job after two months. And um, in 1906, he accepts Henry Stimson's offer to be an assistant federal prosecutor in lower Manhattan. And that really changes the trajectory of Frankfurter's life. It shows Frankfurter this kind of gospel of public service, that there is no greater client that one can have as a lawyer than the United States government. And, you know, that enters Frankfurter in sort of this orbit of American politics. And by age 26, he has befriended former President Theodore Roosevelt. They are working together on the campaign trail to get Henry Stimson um, elected governor. Stimson doesn't become governor, becomes Taft Secretary of War, and he brings Frankfurter down to Washington with him. And Frankfurter starts this sort of political salon in his boarding house with other young Taft officials who are up and coming called the House of Truth. And they sort of invite a who's who of Washingtonians to come to this house, including Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and Louis Brandeis. And he, befriend, he Frankfurter, befriend, befriends both men. And then um, by 1914, he's called back to the Harvard Law faculty. He says, to a man, we want Frankfurter. That's what they said. And, of course, the Harvard Law faculty at that point was all white men and no Jews. And he was the first Jew on the, the Harvard Law faculty. And Frankfurter gets really back involved in American politics in 1916. He, has, he and his friends have co-founded a magazine called The New Republic, and in the New Republic, he fights for Louis Brandeis's confirmation when Woodrow Wilson nominates him and goes back into the administration in the War Department during World War I. He defends a bunch of state minimum wage and maximum hour laws. And I think to Andy's point, the reason why he becomes a Thayerian is he really believes that the, the tables are uneven between labor and management and that the dominant issue um, in industrialized America um, in the first couple decades of the 20th century is um, that labor is being exploited and that labor unions have no voice in our society. And Frankfurter and his friends on the New Republic want to create a, an industrial democracy. And he's defending minimum wage and maximum hour laws in cases like Bunting versus Oregon in 1917. And then in, in 1923, he loses a case about a D.C. minimum wage law called Atkins versus Children's Hospital, where the Supreme Court of the United States, which has taken quite a reactionary turn, and a lot of conservatives have joined the court, and um, they sort of revive Lochner versus New York, which a lot of people, including Chief Justice Taft, thought had been sub silentio overruled. And he loses that case, and, and his whole kind of worldview about the court as an institution has been sort of shattered. He never argues another Supreme Court case and becomes the court's one of the court's most prominent critics in the New Republic and other publications and, and becomes a real civil libertarian, right? Opposing the Palmer raids 
roundup and deportation of radical immigrants, championing the case of Sacco and Vanzetti, and then advising presidential candidates and an, a gubernatorial candidate in 1928 named Franklin Roosevelt when he runs for governor of New York. And he recognizes Franklin Roosevelt as the future of the Democratic Party. And all, this was not obvious at the time. He also recognized um, that the Democratic Party was the future of liberalism in this country, where there were liberals in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party um, before that. Um, he saw the Democratic Party as the future of this country, and he became Roosevelt's foremost outside advisor. He turns down turned down Roosevelt's offer to be Solicitor General representing the U.S. government before the Supreme Court because he says, I can do more for you from the outside. And indeed he does. Um, he is a, a constant presence at the White House and and writing Roosevelt letters, and um, he's really that indispensable jack-of-all-trades for Roosevelt um, on a number of pieces of, of legislation. And, and it really helps Roosevelt navigate the New Deal constitutional crisis, which, as Akil said, the world of constitutional law changed forever in 1937. And, and it sort of reinforced Frankfurter's idea that we should seek change through the democratic political process and not from the Supreme Court of the United States. And I think he and Hugo Black have that in common, right? That seminal moment of 1937 being making a huge impact on them. They take different approaches to how to cabin judicial power, but, but I think they have similar goals. So I think that, you know, the world that, that Frankfurter inhabits um, during this time is a world where the possibilities seem endless um, that the legislature is as seen as a force for progress, and the court is seen as an obstacle to that progress. And that's, you know, if, if you wanted a cure for that, you might say, okay, theorism, this is the cure for that. Let the legislature do what it, what it needs to do um, and, you know, stop the court from getting in the way. And another way to look at that is... Um, I think you have a fascinating comparison uh, towards the end of the book where you uh, you, de- you describe the meetings uh, between Felix Frankfurter and Lyndon Johnson when Johnson becomes president. You know, Kennedy is going to give Frankfurter the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and, but he's assassinated before he can do that. And uh, Johnson winds up doing it, and so the two of them you know, meet on, uh, not that they had not met before, but they, they meet on a number of occasions, even though Frankfurter is losing it in some ways you know, at that point. And so I'm going to just read our, our audience a, a brief passage from the book about this, um, where you say, Johnson and Frankfurter had a lot in common. They overcame hard scrabble beginnings. Johnson from a small town in the Texas Hill Country to a small teacher's college to a job teaching Mexican immigrant children how to speak English. Frankfurter, as an Austrian Jewish immigrant who had arrived at Ellis Island at age 11, not able to speak or understand a word of English. They both worked their ways into the corridors of political power by befriending wise mentors, Sam Rayburn in Johnson's case and Henry Stimson in Frankfurter's. They both adored Franklin Roosevelt. They both strived to bring the best people into government service. And they both believed that in a democracy, from the New Deal to the Great Society, from Ellis Island to the Hill Country, anything was possible. So, you know, first of all, lovely writing. But I think if you if you if you think of of you know what Lyndon Johnson would think, he would think, okay, let me do my thing. So you could see where he might have come to to the court with that in mind. So just to reiterate first what Andy said, which is you know in the book, okay, let's just. 
think about all, all the ways in which Frankfurter's rise is astonishing and his accomplishments are astonishing. Because I'm going to have out the guy once he gets on the Supreme Court, but I, I want to give him his due. And, and Brad tells an amazing story. Okay, so he's born Jewish, and he comes to a Protestant America that's anti-Semitic. He's not born in America. He's not born speaking English. And he comes, and in his early 20s, he's tops in his class at Harvard Law School as a student. That's astonishing, just in and of itself. And then he goes down to D.C. and becomes an intimate of some of the greatest figures, legal and political, that is possible to imagine. Former presidents and current justices on the court. Wow, wow, wow. And really impressive people like Henry Stimson take him under their wing and their mentors to him because they recognize his talent. Wow. And then Brad said he's the first Jew on the Harvard Law School faculty. That in and of itself, in a world that Brad said was a legal world that was ruthlessly anti-Semitic. You know, today, you know, a quarter of the people who graduated from Harvard Law School, maybe, including, you know, um, Matthew Philip Lipka, are Jews. Probably the same at Yale, a quarter to a third, I, I'm guessing something like that. And in this era, uh, well, Brandeis has made, will, makes it onto the Supreme Court, and Brad mentioned that with uh, Frankfurter assisting. But before Brandeis, no Jews on the court, and Brad is saying when uh, Frankfurt is rising, the great American law firms, especially in places like New York, aren't hiring top Jews, even if they're top of their class. So I just want just our audience to hear all of that. And we're going to talk about the Pomerades and Sacco and Vanzetti and Thayer just to, I mean, just to fill in some of the – because it's such an extraordinary ascent. I, I just want to identify all the different components of this. Yeah, well, one thing I think I left out, Akil, and uh, thank you for highlighting all of that, and I didn't want to – drone on and on is he was doing something remarkable as a Harvard law professor when, when from 1914 to 1939, which was he was mentoring all of the best students on the Harvard Law Review and, and students who weren't on the Harvard Law Review. And he was saying, don't go to a New York law firm. Don't go to a Boston law firm. Don't go to Washington law firm. Don't go to a Chicago law firm. You should aspire to public service and you should aspire to go work in the United States government. And he was placing these top students um, in, in the government and, you know, with names like Dean Acheson, you know, the, the future secretary of state, but also um, some of the top African-American um, law students at Harvard, Charles Hamilton Houston, the first black editor of the Harvard Law Review and William Hasty. And, and just on, on Charles Hamilton Houston, who will in turn mentor Thurgood Marshall. Right. And then William Hasty, the second black member of the Harvard Law Review and the first black federal judge in this country. Felix was throwing dozens of stones in ponds and the ripple effect were just enormous, right? Because he was sort of preaching this gospel of public service. He had so many students who, who, who believed in, in his mission that the best thing you could possibly do is serve your country and government. And according to Joseph Alsop, that's Frankfurt's biggest contribution. Forget the court, forget the first this or the first that, but it's all the people that he placed in, in, in public service. That's you know, my and view. And it's quite remarkable in, in many ways because, you know, Akil mentioned the anti-Semitism, and of course the book gets into this in, in great detail where the president of Harvard has got it in for him 
big time, you know, over and over again. He he seeks to get him removed. He hold withholds a name professorship from him. He he undermines him before the uh, you know the public and when he's appointed as a friend of the court to investigate the Palmer disgraces that occur after after World War One. And so there's so much goes on. But in addition to that, so this is happening, you know, amidst the anti-Semitism, but also he's innovating. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, there's a, kind of a, a growth of the law clerk uh, system during this time, and he has gets to name five clerks to the Supreme Court uh, are totally within his power to say, okay, take this guy, take that. So that's, you know, quite remarkable that he's able to develop this power base and he's not only feeding to Jews, you know, so it's not a, a religious-based power base. So I think that that itself is quite remarkable. Um, and our audience will remember that I've highlighted in previous episodes two people in particular who are Frankfurter protégés whom I hold in the highest regard. Our audience already, um, our loyal audience, faithful audience that's listened to previous episodes already knows that I myself am more in a Hugo Black originalist tradition, and that's a different intellectual tradition, more actually Yale-oriented than in a Felix Frankfurter tradition. And sometimes Black and, and Frankfurter agreed, but actually a lot of times they didn't. And, and, and Brad wants us all to, you know, can't we all get along? And I'm going to say, actually, no, we can't. We have to choose. And I choose Black, and I'll tell you why. But, Andy, you and I are going to do something in honor of Hugo Black a little bit later next month, and we're going to do a podcast episode uh, from Alabama uh, for some of these events in honor of of Hugo Black. But two of Frankfurter's most distinguished protégés are very much role models for me. One is Telford Taylor, and we had a whole episode on him. And another, and I think Telford Taylor was the greatest lawyer of the 20th century, in my view. And another was Henry Friendly, who was, in my view, the greatest judge, not justice, but the greatest judge of the 20th century. And Andy, just a couple things about that to your point. Um, Telford Taylor is a Gentile. Henry Friendly is Jewish. Henry Friendly is going to be the person that a young John Roberts actually clerks for. That's his first clerkship. Henry Friendly, in turn, he himself was a law clerk to Louis Brandeis. And we've talked about, actually, um, how in previous episodes, Brandeis and Friendly, I think, are important influences on on John Roberts. So this stuff continues to the present day. We've also, of course, had the great Philip Bobbitt um, on as a guest. He clerked for Friendly, as did many, many other people. Friendly's clerks. If you just think about, okay, Frankfurter's protege is Friendly. Now, whom did Friendly in turn mentor? You know, Frankfurter mentored Friendly. Whom did Friendly mentor? Oh, my gosh, it's a who's who, both in um, the academy and on the bench. So we're talking about John Roberts. We're talking about Merrick Garland. We're talking about Ray Randolph on the D.C. Circuit, senior judge. We're talking about Michael Boudin, senior judge on the First Circuit. We're talking about Pierre Laval, a senior judge on, on the Second Circuit. We're talking about extraordinary academics, the most distinguished academics imaginable from Bruce Ackerman to Philip Bobbitt to David Curry to you name it. And they're all, in effect, grandchildren, so to speak, of Frankfurter to the extent that they actually travel through 
friendly. And they also descend, of course, from Brandeis insofar as friendly clerked for Brandeis. And Telford Taylor is a slightly different tradition, you see. But, but our audience, because America's constitution is a somewhat small world, and our audience has already heard a lot about my particular, I'm not a Frankfurter person, truthfully, and I'm, I'm not that keen on Bickle, and I'll tell you why. Bickle, I was a professor at, of constitutional law at Yale before yours truly. But I am an enormous admirer of Taylor and, and Friendly, who in turn were exceptionally talented people who were spotted by a young Felix Frankfurter. So here's one thing I can tell you about Frankfurt. I don't agree with his constitutional philosophy, but he had a great eye for young talent. I think just undeniably, and he himself came from nowhere to just rise to, to meteoric heights. And I want to give him all of that because, you know, our audience will hear some of my criticisms of Justice Frankfurter, but wow, wow, wow. And, and Brad tells that story compellingly. He was very modest. He just mentioned this house that Frankfurter had in D.C., I think, Brad, you wrote another book about that, right? The House of Truth is what they yeah. called it. My first book was about the House of Truth and the, and the people who came there and exchanged ideas there. And it was um, based around Felix Frankfurter and, and Walter Lippmann and Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. And then the sculptor of Mount Rushmore, Gutzon Borglum. But um, Akil, you said something about Henry Friendly. I, I just sort of want to point out, and Andy did too, Frankfurter had a sort of tryout for these clerkships with a fourth-year graduate program in law after um, the clerkship. Today, it's it's like um, Yale Law School's PhD in law program, but Frankfurter and Roscoe Pound um, were running this program, and it was basically a tryout for clerkships. It also um, enabled Frankfurter not only to funnel people in the public service, but also into the legal academy because these people would co um, author articles with him. And Henry Friendly was in many ways, Akil, the one who got away. Frankfurter recognized that he was a generational talent. You're right, he had a great eye for talent. But Frankfurter, Henry Friendly's parents wanted him to go into legal practice, um, did not want him to waste time um, with another year of law school, um, barely wanted him to clerk for Justice Brandeis. And and so um, instead of doing that fourth year of graduate work, um, he went to Justice Brandeis, and Brandeis and Frankfurter were trying to send Friendly immediately on to the Harvard Law faculty, and Friendly instead went into private practice. Friendly turns down um, a job that Frankfurter lines up for him late in the Hoover um, administration in the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, a job which Tom Corcoran ends up taking, but um, Friendly regretted turning that down. Um, and, and so Frankfurter could have kind of turned his back on Friendly, like he he turned down my offer for the graduate program. He turned down Harvard Law School to teach. He turned down the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. He doesn't give up on Henry Friendly. He spends much of the 1950s with his friend Learned Hand fighting for a judgeship for Henry Friendly because he realizes the, the impact that Henry Friendly can make on the law outside of a private law school. And I, I think that speaks a lot for Frankfurter, right, of, as, that he has a tremendous loyalty to these ex- incredibly talented students. And sometimes that tremendous loyalty gets him into trouble, but he never turns his back on Alger Hiss, right, that, who was um, convicted of perjury for denying that he was acting as a communist spy. But he, he testifies as a character witness at Hiss's trial, 
But even when everyone else, after Hiss gets convicted and goes to prison, turns his back on Alger Hiss, Frankfurter's still trying to find ways um, that Hiss can make a living and is furious at the um, dean of Harvard Law School for denying Hiss the opportunity to edit a abridged version of the Holmes-Lasky letters. And, just to, and, and so I really admire that quality in Frankfurter, that, that these are people that he identified as extremely talented, and certainly they're not, they all have flaws, but even the most flawed among them, um, he, he remained loyal to um, through thick and thin, and, and, I, and I kind of uh, admire that in him. So, you know, um, so we've described some characteristics of Frankfurter that I think are, one might view as unusual and outstanding. One, that he had a great eye for talent, you've both said. I think another, that he was very friendly, for if you'll pardon the pun, given that we've been talking about Henry Friendly, but, you know, that he he was a great conversationalist, that he, you know, the house of truth, you know, that, that he he liked to have this intellectual salon-like um, environs, and that helped him, obviously. Um, he had a great mentor in Henry Stimson. Um, I, would you describe him as well as a great mentor? Um, it's one thing to be an eye for talent, to have an eye for talent. That's not quite the same as mentoring. I, I do think he was a great mentor. I do think he um, encouraged his um, his students. Um, you know, there there are some uh, um, former students he had who were in the academy um, who um, whose wives resented the hold that Frankfurter had on him. And I'm, here I'm thinking about Mark DeWolf Howe, um, who Frankfurter assigned to write the authorized biography of Justice Holmes. And he, he only got through two um, really magisterial volumes before he died. And, and Howe's wife um, resented that, that Frankfurter had tasked him with this and accused him of, of, um, of sucking all the blood out of Mark DeWolf Howe like a vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, another one of Frankfurter's priorities said, but he also pumped a lot of blood into people. And invigorated people. He was an, an extroverted, um, invigorate, and he, he talking to him was invigorating and inspiring. And I think he had inspired um, his proteges to do great things. Um, could he be uh, domineering at times? Yes. And, and that um, that that was a flaw of his um, that came out when he was a Supreme Court justice. Um, but he was an incredibly positive um, role model for so many people. Right? I mean, he had three um, former students or law clerks who became federal cabinet members in Atchison, um, William T. Coleman, who was the first black law clerk on the Supreme Court of the United States, um, and Elliot Richardson, right? And I'm probably... Coleman clerked for Frankfurter himself, correct? Right. Um, Frankfurter uh, hires him on the court. So he he hires the first black law clerk. We've talked, I mean, this has been a who's who. I mean, just total name dropping. And that's not, you know, Brad's fault. That's because actually Frankfurter was at the center of this extraordinary constellation of of stars. A name has uh, has been dropped once or twice that I want to highlight. And an institution has been mentioned once or twice that I actually want to highlight. The name is Walter Littman and the institution is the New Republic, TNR. So we've been talking about Frankfurter's connections to the Academy, Harvard in particular, his connections to people in elective politics, to people in the cabinet, in running for governors. FDR will be a governor before the presidency, his connection to, to presidents like FDR, his connection to jurists like Frankfurt judges like Frankfurter and Holmes, and uh 
um, and, and to all these youngsters whom he's sending into New Deal agencies at a certain point. The New Republic connection is also a really important one. So he's connected to this guy named Littman, who's a journalist, Walter Littman, a preeminent early journalist, who's one of the founders of the New Republic, which exists today. So Frankfurter actually you know, has media connections as well as judicial connections, academic connections, and political connections. Now, since this is a Marcus constitution, I should just tell our audience, I once was actually on the editorial uh, staff. I, I was a contributing editor to the, the New Republic. Um, uh, that uh, relationship ended at, at a certain point. Um, uh, but um, New Republic is, is a pretty important institution in the history of 20th century American liberalism. So Frankfurter, he's like Zelig. He's everywhere. Well, don't it's, forget, it's he really also, astonishing. He's also, this was a fascinating part of the book. I mean, you know, I I was joking about the length of the book, but in fact, it could have been a lot a lot longer. I mean, uh, so he's at Versailles, and and uh, and he's there, and he meets with, you know, I guess principally about Zionist questions. Um, so he meets with Chaim Weitzman. He he gets to know Prince Faisal. Uh, he's involved with the Balfour, and you know, all the players are. You know, are on the on the Frankfurter list, and not just like hey to shake his hand, but to be to be quite influential and it's really quite amazing. And of course, this is not what how one thinks of a Supreme Court justice these days. In fact, Akil has talked about the fact that now you kind of have to choose your lane a fairly early on in the career. Are you going to be you know, uh, are you going to aim to be a judge and possibly a justice, or are you going to be a congressman? You know, what's what's your what's your lane even within public service? And so this is a, a time where things were far more fluid. And uh, but you, ha- I think it's so. The question is, you write this book, and it, and he's this amazing character, and of course that would make him worthy of biography in in any in any time. But if we just look at it from the point of view of him becoming a Supreme Court justice, how does the fact that he brings all of this experience to the table, and the one thing, by the way, we're not talking about very much, is all the great legal scholarship he did, because there wasn't any, (laughs) or that much of it, before he was on the court, that he personally, in fact, there's a quote that you have here, um, I'll just read it quickly for our audience, Uh, it's not your characterization entirely, but... um, Again, this is in the aftermath of his, of his demise. He said, uh, Austin Scott uh, described Frank Futter as a legendary student who had finished first in the class of 1906. Um, his recruitment of Scott to work at Henry Stimson's law firm and a vibrant colleague who had left a great void at the law school, which no one could fill. As he surely knew, and this is you speaking, Brad, Frank Futter was not a great scholar. His graduate students often co-authored his law review articles and wrote the first drafts of his books. His major contribution was as a teacher who challenged his students and inspired them to pursue public service. So, okay, so there we, so this is, again, in trying to create this portrait of, of Frankfurter as he comes to the court. So how do you see all this as impacting on him and creating the picture of Frankfurter the Justice? Well, I, I want to answer by going back to Akil's point about the New Republic which is a lot of people thought, and Herbert Crowley, who a name we haven't mentioned yet, who was the founder of the New Republic, 
right, really thought that Frankfurter was miscast as a lawyer and miscast as a Harvard law professor and that he should have been a journalist. And um, when, when the New Republic starts, it, the first issue is, in, is um, in October of 1914, is the same um, fall semester where Frankfurter starts on the Harvard Law Faculty and, and Crowley thinks Frankfurter's making a big mistake and that he should join the New Republic full time. And Frankfurter says, no, no, no. And uh, uh, But what Frankfurter ends up doing on the New Republic is writing all of these editorials, some signed, some not, criticizing the Supreme Court of the United States. He writes them himself. They're beautifully written. Um, some of them really encapsulate um, his judicial philosophy. And there's no one in the, in the country holding the Supreme Court's feet to the fire the way that Supreme the way that Felix Frankfurter is um, in the New Republic, it's remarkable that, that he, you know, it's, it's a time where there's just not a lot of Supreme Court coverage, right? We don't have the America podcast or other podcasts. We don't have um, all these people on the Internet writing about the Supreme Court. And, and so Frankfurter's voice was huge on this subject and incredibly eloquent. You know, there's something to that idea that um, he he was really great as a journalist because he was so extroverted, extroverted in a way that Herbert Crowley, who was totally introverted, and and Walter Lippmann, who himself was very much kind of an introvert, right? Frankfurter was the extrovert on the New Republic who knew everyone, um, but also could write about the Supreme Court in a way that no one else could um, at the country, in the country at the time. And, you know, I'm probably shortchanging Thomas Reed Powell, um, who was um, an effective critic of the court, but certainly didn't have the megaphone um, of the New Republic that, that Frank Furter did. And that, you know, others tried to take up that mantle later on. Alex Bickle sort of took on that mantle in the New Republic, criticizing the court. And then, you know, Jeff Rosen and others, you know, in a more modern um, generation, or um, writing about the Supreme Court in, in a critical way. That was a tremendous part of his pre-judicial life. If, if, I could, if I could just pick up on just one thing, again, connecting dots for our audience. Uh, we're going to actually, in a future episode, have the great Nina Totenberg on as a guest, and there's a lot of commentary right now about her relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she has a whole book about that, and, and Ginsburg's sent to the court is in certain ways very much like Frankfurter in that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a really important historical figure even before she became a justice because of her crusading uh, law work. Another story of American Jewry and New Heights with a female justice on the court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Then there are folks who are talking about Nina's book and saying, oh, you know, it's very incestuous. You know, she covers people whom she knows. Well, America's constitution is incestuous in that way, and, and it's a small world. And you mentioned a really interesting name for our audience, my dear friend, Jeff Rosen, who has promised to, to be on this podcast um, and whose brother-in-law, Neil Katyal, has been on this podcast on multiple occasions. And actually, I introduced uh, Jeff to Neil in total Felix Frankfurter fashion. Okay, this is like a salon. Okay, I have proteges and I want them to know each other. And I introduce Jeff to Neil, and and Jeff eventually introduces Neil to Jeff's sister, whom Neil marries. And this is this is a total Felix Frankfurter like story. But Jeff Rosen was the legal affairs editor at the New Republic, and before him, the last legal affairs editor at the New Republic, a generation earlier 
was actually Alex Bickle. And Alex Bickle, of course, was maybe Felix Frankfurter's most famous law clerk academic who ends up um, at Yale Law School and um, having a, a complex relationship to a young uh, Akilah Mar. So it's a small world in, of a certain sort. And Brad is tracing all the connections just to repeat between journalism and elective politics and the deep state from cabinet positions to lower levels of, of the um, and mid levels of, of the bureaucracy the judiciary, the academy. Did I mention journalism? But all of these things actually populated by people who go to places like Harvard and Harvard Law School, or today also Yale and Yale Law School and, 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 and the like. So, so that's the Felix Frankfurter world in certain respects. That's still the world of America's constitution. It's an insider world. And people say, oh, Nina Totenberg is friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And what's to make of that? But the difference, yeah. though, Akil, is that in, in Frankfurter's day, this appears to have been viewed as a huge asset for Frankfurter. You know, whereas now it's scandalous. Um, so, or, or at least some would consider it scandalous. I, I just wanted to... to to answer Andy's question directly too, I do think that Frankfurter's business of the Supreme court series was an important scholarly contribution, even though it was co-written with some of his finest proteges like Jim Landis. Um, it recognized that after 1925, the Supreme court was able to um, pick and choose um, the judiciary act of 1925. It's able to pick and choose the cases it wants to hear that changes the court as an institution and the court as an institution should be studied based on the types of cases it's picking and choosing to hear. And so when he starts writing these annual businesses of the Supreme Court, if you will, it's like business of the Supreme Court for the October term for 1926 or 1927 or 1928 or 1929, which today you would see on SCOTUS blog, right? But there was no no one else kind of doing these, um, these analyses of what the previous Supreme Court term uh, looked like. In many ways, Frankfurter was ahead of his time. And I just want to mention one other journalistic journalistic connection. Um, Akil, after Frankfurter joins the court, there's no one writing about the Supreme Court as a journalist in the way that Frankfurter thinks it should be written about. He goes to the publisher of the New York Times and said, you know, Salzberger says, you would not cover the seventh game of the World Series. Um, the way you are covering the, the Supreme Court of the, the United States, um, you, you, you just wouldn't do it, right? And um, he has um, the person who should be the full-time journalist covering the Supreme Court of the United States. He happens to be um, on a fellowship at Harvard, and he writes Gideon's Trumpet. Anthony Lewis. Anthony Lewis. And he says, you've got to have Anthony Lewis covering the Supreme Court. When Anthony Lewis does this journalistic fellowship at Harvard, this Neiman Fellowship, he spends the entire year at Harvard Law School um, excelling in his classes on constitutional law, um, um, just on par with among the most brilliant students. But Frankfurter makes sure that his coterie of former students who are teaching at at Harvard Law School mentor Anthony Lewis. And lo and behold, Anthony Lewis um, returns to the New York Times and becomes really um, the first and maybe the greatest reporter who has ever covered uh, the Supreme Court of the United States. And that's really Frankfurter's doing. He recognizes that his own court 
needs a watchdog, needs criticism, and needs someone covering it on a day-to-day basis, and somebody who understands how the court works. That's that's remar- That was, in writing this book, just remarkable to me um, that he was able to do that, not just because of his contacts, but again, as Akil said, recognizing Anthony Lewis as an enormous talent. So it's not surprising to me that... Uh you would respond to a your own criticism of 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 uh, of Frankfurter as being limited as a scholar by elevating the importance of his coverage of the court, um, be, coming from a former from someone who teaches about the history of the court, um, that talking about the importance of the seventh game of the covering the seventh game of the World Series from a former sports reporter. So um, yes. Brad, one way of thinking about just the largeness of Felix Frankfurter is to think about who today plays a role akin to Frank, the role, the, the, the role or roles that Frankfurter played over the course of his life. Um, so in a certain respect, we've seen, okay, Frankfurter is a journalist of a certain sort. So he's like Brad Snyder. He's a journalist who covers the Supreme Court. So he's like Nina Potenberg, who's going to come on our podcast soon enough, like Linda Greenhouse, who did come on our podcast um, earlier. He's also a scholar. Uh, he, he, um, oh, uh, uh, and he's like, um, uh, um, and, he, and he's like Jeff Rosen, who, who has agreed to come on the podcast as well. Oh, and of course, I should also mention Amy Howe, who was also her own version of, of Felix Frankfurter doing amazing things as a Supreme Court journalist. He's a scholar of the judiciary, and in that respect, he's a little bit like yours truly. He is actually pushing reforms of the court, the 1925 bill. Oh, our audience will recognize that as very similar to, Andy, the 18-year idea that that I've been pushing that would uh, reconfigure the court, okay? In addition to all of that, He's also, he will be a justice like RBG or something like that. So when we have Nina, for example, on on the program, talking about her relationship with um, RBG, Frankfurt is both of those things. Yes. So you you say RBG, but in fact, um, you know, she argued cases before the Supreme Court, as did Felix Frankfurter before he became a justice. So they have that in common as well. So all, and today, Andy, you nailed it, it's harder to play all those different roles. If you want to be a justice today, you have to actually start by going to Harvard or Yale Law School, it seems. Okay, Frankfurt did that. Then you have to do a clerkship. Well, in Frankfurt's era, that didn't quite exist. He, you know, and others helped um, invent the clerkship. And then you actually have to, early in your career, be a, a judge, and then you move up within the judiciary to become a justice. And that's not the world that Brad is describing, a world in which this one person is a lawyer and a public intellectual and a journalist and an academic and an insider, a mover and and shaker, and then relatively later, actually, transitions to being a justice. And and he still doesn't want to quite give up all of those other contacts, which is maybe going to create some some issues about ethical propriety once he takes the robes or takes the veil, so to speak. I agree, Akil, 100%, right? And, you know, I think Frankfurter recognized the danger of the professionalization of judging way before a lot of other people did, right? He thought, he wrote a 
an article in the, I think it was in the Pennsylvania Law, University of Pennsylvania Law Review, saying, look at all the great justices throughout history, right? He was excluding the current ones on the court, but they did had not been judges, right, before they joined the court. And he, he thought there was a real danger um, to only selecting judges um, who um, had been court of appeals judges. And he, he was really upset with Eisenhower for um, sort of focusing in on, well, I need a justice from the Midwest. So I, I, I'm going to put um, Charles Evans Whitaker on the Supreme Court of the United States. And of course, um, you know, Whitaker um, sadly suffered a nervous breakdown um, when, when he was on the court and, and was sort of really unfit for the job. Um, you know, Frankfurter thought there was a danger to just looking to the courts of appeals for our judges. And I, I think he was on to something. I think one of the things that made um, the Hughes court, the Stone court, and the Warren court um, more vib- vibrant and interesting um, were the different backgrounds that people had um, in political life um, and out of political life um, before they got to the court. They had a wealth of experience, and your 18-year term limit idea, which I totally agree with, um, would en- enable people like that who have a wealth of experience at age 55 or 60, they could join the court rather than at age um, 40. 42 or 43. And, and we might, and that's, this isn't a political point. It's not aimed at um, either Democratic or Republican pointy, appointees. We might get better justices all the way across the board and across the political spectrum that way. And that's how you get people like Hugo Black and William O. Douglas and Robert Jackson and Felix Frankfurter um, on the court. And, and that's how we got these giants was because they had a, um, all these life experiences before they got on the court. Even the William O. Douglas was quite young when he joined the court. He had already been the chair of the SEC and had been a professor at Yale and Columbia. Um, so um, I think we're we're on the same page on that. You know, I think you get the some people worry about sort of the self-aggrandizement of the court, the great uh, the great and powerful Oz, as as Akil sometimes you know terms their view of themselves. Um, and uh, you could see how that would happen if you spent your entire career in the judiciary, you know, and now you've reached the very peak of the, of the basically what is your frame of reference. Whereas Frankfurter brings to the court the, you know, the, the majesty of the, of the Congress and of the presidency, less so that of the court. Um, so, and again, getting back to my question earlier, so that would one would think would be consistent with a, you know, subdued view of, of the court's role. So do you think that his life history, um, you know, played into the, his judicial philosophy once he steps on the court? Yes, of course, right? Um, you know, he, he served in the Theodore Roosevelt administration as the prosecutor, in the Taft administration, in the War Department, in the Wilson administration, in the war again, right? You know, I, I think he saw um, the government, and specifically um, the federal government, but also the states um, as a way um, that that people should be solving their political, social, and, and economic problems. And one thing, and he is one of the most pro-Congress justices we have ever had. And here's where I think he's somewhat right. If you look um, from the adoption of the 14th Amendment, um, it, it was passed in 1866, ratified 1868. If you look forward, on, and I know this is building on a lot of Akil's ideas. Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys in our 14th Amendment story? Um, I think Frankfurter correctly saw um, that Congress 
um, was the good guys um, in this story. This is why, as you um, asked me earlier about his relationship with Lyndon Johnson, he saw in 1957 this Civil Rights Act that everybody thought was toothless and somewhat pointless and, and a sellout. He saw it as a huge achievement, as the first time since Reconstruction, Congress beginning to weigh in to make our society more equal. And, um, you know, he was really um, encouraging people to help Lyndon, right, um, get this law through. And so, um, you know, he saw this as a, a huge event. And so, you know, the you know, the, I think the 64 and the 65 Civil Rights Act, even though they came after Frankfurter um, was on the was off the court, I think they really vindicated him in a lot of ways. So, Andy, on just that point, I want to connect the dots to stuff that we're talking about now. So I'm an admirer of John Roberts, but I think one of the most disgraceful cases of the last 20 years, and I said so actually at Senate confirmation hearing of Justice Kavanaugh, was the Shelby County case in which the United States Supreme Court, an opinion by the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, who, just to remind everyone, clerked for Henry Friendly, who was a Felix Frankfurter protege, John Roberts and the court, a conservative majority, invalidated a major portion of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, shame on them, and I criticized at the time, and the great dissent um, in that case was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, actually, I think in a Frankfurter tradition in this, but also truthfully in an Akhil Amar tradition, she cites me in that dissent because she's a better originalist, you see, than, than I think Frankfurter even was. We're going to talk about that for the proposition that Reconstruction was really important and the frame and the Supreme Court majority was trivializing the significance of the second founding. That's actually what she cites me for. That's, in fact, the key part, frankly, of her dissent. So that's why what Brad is saying is is relevant today. There's going to be another Voting Rights Act case coming before the Supreme Court. And the question is whether they're going to gut it a second time, a different provision. So this stuff that Brad just said is hugely relevant to today's Supreme Court. Okay. Then Frankfurter is on the court, and he continues to advise Roosevelt and and others. Um, So, uh, again, I I find that reading about that, I find that astounding. You know, in in the light of of today, I I couldn't help but think of James Buchanan and Roger Tawney <laughs> talking about Dred Scott, but um, of course that's very different. But um, do you see uh, this as fundamentally different from today's court? Um, and do you think if it is, do you think it was a function of the man, of the or of the time, or the structure of the institutions? I think there was a long tradition of it, Andy, and I just want to be clear that I'm not excusing it. I don't think it was right. But there was a long tradition of it. It went all the way up to Warren Berger talking to Richard Nixon um, on um, the Nixon tapes about pending cases. There was, um, but but it goes back to Brandeis advising Woodrow Wilson um, was when he was on the court. Um, so Frankfurter thought it was okay, um, and I just think it's easy in 2022 to judge. Um, Frankfurter also thought the world was coming to an end. That World War II was the war um, for civilization. And that he thought that in many respects, um, the ends justified the means, right? It wasn't so much that he was advising President Roosevelt, 
My problem with Frankfurter, and I say it in the book, is that he's advising Secretary of War Henry Stimson, who Frankfurter himself has encouraged Roosevelt to bring back into the cabinet because, again, we're about to fight a war for civilization. The U.S. hasn't entered World War II. At this point, Pearl Harbor hasn't happened. But he gets Henry Stimson reinstalled as a Secretary of War. And and Stimson's um, right-hand man is John McCloy, a former student of, of Frankfurter's. He's advising Stimson and McCloy, right, while sitting on the Nazi saboteur cases. Right. While sitting on cases about Korematsu, he should not have been doing that. Right. He should have, at the very least, recused himself from ex parte Kieran, which was the case involving the eight Nazi saboteurs. He should have recused himself from Korematsu because you can, on the one hand, give people advice and then sit on the cases. And that's where I thought he really crossed an ethical line. And I think it's and I, I said that in the book. Right. I believe it now. Um, But again, I just want to remind people, in 1941 and 1942, it wasn't certain who was going to win World War II, right? And and Frankfurter um, wasn't willing to chance the idea of Nazi Germany prevailing in World War II. And so he was going to use every means at his disposal um, to make sure um, that the U.S. helped the Allies win the war. And Brad, good for you on both points for having authorial detachment and being willing to criticize the subject, your main protagonist. Some biographers are very hesitant to do that. And I think that's unfortunate. Not all the great biographers. Andy, of course, at this point will want me to mention his hero, Robert Cairo, who doesn't seem to have that that, uh, that problem. Um, willing to go after um, Robert Moses at, at, at times and, and and Lyndon Johnson at times. So good for you on two counts for being willing to criticize, you know, your main subject, your protagonist, your biographical protagonist, but also good for you for trying to actually contextualize things and give us the point of view of your subject and also um, remind us of the mores and, and traditions and customs of a different era. So well done on both counts. Thanks, Akil. That means a lot to me. I mean, the other point where Frankfurter gets really criticized, and this is all public knowledge because he wrote about it, is another one of his former law clerks, Phil Elman, is working in the Justice Department on Brown versus Board of Education. And, and, Frankfurter's talking to him about um, what the court's struggling with. And, and uh, you know, people rightly believe that's a, um, a huge violation of separation of powers and, and that Frankfurter should not have been doing that. But again, I think Frankfurter saw this rightly as the most important Supreme Court decision of the 20th century. And he needed the justice departments of both first Eisenhower and then Truman to be on board and to play a positive role in this process. And, and, and he saw, again, um, the, the non-judicial branches playing um, an essential role um, in promoting social change. And he just thought the ends justified the means there, that the Justice Department had to weigh in um, in favor of the NAACP's case. And, and you know, he deserves the criticism. And I think if he were here, he'd say, I'd do it all over again. He'd be sort of unrepentant about it. Well, I think, you know, it goes back to uh, kind of fundamental questions about the court. Um, sure, he was extremely valuable as an advisor to Roosevelt and this sort of thing. Stimson was a great appointment for one thing, but he could have resigned from the court and and you know fulfilled this role. Someone else could have been the justice. He didn't have to do both those things. He was perhaps more irreplaceable 
as a man, as a finder of talent and advisor than he was as a justice. And, you know, and I think that, uh, and actually also, you know, if you're, if people around you, if you're a role model and people around you see you bending these rules, it can encourage rule bending uh, of another type. And I thought that this occurred in a, uh, uh, in the Gabaitis case, um, thought it was very interesting. I and mean, we're going to talk about Gabaitis um, some more when we, when we talk about the, the cases, obviously. But uh, this reminded me of something that's going on today uh, where here's a, uh, you know, so his, his, his clerks are, you know, horrified by, uh, so Gabaitis just as uh, our listeners to our podcast will know that it's, uh, we've referred to it because of the fact that it's reversed by Barnett. It's the flag saluting case. Um, so we've talked about it a lot in terms of the court reversing itself based simply on a wrong decision uh, as it sees it. But um, so his clerks are horrified because Frankfurt is going to write the opinion uh, and they're trying to convince him otherwise. Uh, and so here's a short passage from your book. Uh, Several people close to Frankfurter were horrified by his opinion, notably his law clerk, Pritch. Pritch and Phil Graham had been arguing with him about the case. One evening... Can I just interrupt you for one second? Of course, Phil Graham is the future publisher of the Washington Post. Post. You know, yet another um, Frankfurter protege. Sorry to interrupt you, Andy. No, no problem. Thank you for that, that context. Um, one evening, Pritch broke the court's rules about confidentiality and removed the draft Gobitis opinion from Chambers. He took it to the home of Frankfurter's first clerk, Joseph Rao, who at age 29 had become an older brother, father, confessor to Pritch and Graham. And then they go on to discuss the case. So remind you of anything? Draft opinion, <laughs> you know, leaving the court and uh, clerk possibly, you know, taking it out. So... Uh, I, 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 mean, I, I guess the difference is there's a big difference between um, giving it to Politico and you know, law <laughs> clerks are a big family, right? And and so I think um, mm-hmm. you know, showing it to another Frankfurter clerk is a far cry, particularly yes. this is in between years one and three of Frankfurter's time on the court, right? Or maybe even year one and two, Frankfurter's had a some total of four law clerks, right? This is a small little family here. And, and so... Um, I think they knew that Joseph Rao, who became a great civil liberties lawyer, had a long career um, working on behalf of um, the rights of minorities and civil liberties and testifying against um, right-wing Supreme Court justices. He just had an amazing career. He realized that Rao had an enormous and had also clerked for Cardozo, whom, whom Frankfurt succeeded on the court for several years. Rao had a lot of gravitas and a lot of influence on Frankfurter. And, and I think Pritch thought if there was any one person on, in the, on the planet that could change Frankfurter's mind um, on Gabitis, um, that it was Joseph Rao. And all that, is, all that is true. But what you have here is one clerk taking it out of the closed system. Um, mm-hmm. And then anything can happen, you know, at that point. So who, I'm not saying that this, that in, uh, you know, in uh, Dobbs, that, the, that a clerk leaked the opinion. It's possible that a clerk was trying to, you could have the same scenario. Andy, you, you said earlier, of course, uh, he could have just resigned if he wanted to continue to help the administration in this existential struggle against uh, Hitler. The other thing, of course, the, the, is just recusal. I just want to remind our audience that, and, and Brad is saying he should have recused himself, uh, which is a mini resignation, just a resignation, as it were, uh, just on this case specific. But if 
Andy, our 18-year idea, wherever accepted, I just want to remind folks that one of the 18 arguments for 18 years is that recusal is going to be a lot easier because right now, if one justice recuses, that can lead to four, four splits and, and complications. But under our plan, one justice recuses, you got a whole bunch of other people who can eat and immediately fill in and, and that would actually encourage recusal in close cases, which is an argument for the plan, uh, a good thing. Well, I'd love to talk about Gobitis. You know, if you or Akil want to jump in, I'd love to talk about it. Again, Akil, I would never um, excuse it. I mean, I think it's. I think the context is important. And I think um, just to, to go back to the early part of our conversation, I think this is where there are similarities between Frankfurter and Elena Kagan. Um, Frankfurter was following precedent. Right, he was following. You know, the free exercise. I think there's some important things about Gabitis that need some context. The free exercise clause had not been incorporated at the time that that case was argued. Right, um, it was right after that case um, comes down. So, you know, I'm really glad that you're that you want to get into Gabitis some more, Brad, because uh, you know I think that this is sort of a a good segue into what I would say is a logical part two of what we're talking about, and it's so. So follows your book in the sense that, you know, Frankfurter, as we said earlier, he's 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 zealot like he's everywhere. He's a, a character for the ages. And I think we've gone gotten into some of these things now. But he's also an important Supreme Court justice, one of uh, the scorpions that Noah Feldman uh, termed them uh, on the Roosevelt uh, during the Roosevelt era. And this is a constitutional podcast. And as we said, we're going to now start to look at at uh, Frankfurter as constitutional actor, um, and we're going to look at the cases, we're going to look at his theories, and audience, we're going to actually let you know what we mean by theorism in greater detail, and we're going to go through the, and we'll learn a bit about, about Gabaitis and about many of these other cases, and we won't presume that you have, you know, the... Uh, voluminous knowledge that our, that our guest and our uh, our star have. Um, so we'll take you through it, um, and this will be uh, our next week's broadcast for you, which is uh, Justice Frankfurter. And uh, we'll start actually with something which is not a case, but which is a real insight into the cases, which is the story of Justice Frankfurter's nomination. So Brad has agreed to come back with us for this. So thank you very much, and uh, until then. Thanks, Andy. Thanks.